Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. I'd like to start by putting a graphic up, if you'll uh, look at the screen. Uh, Before salvation, let's just say you look like that. Anybody look like that when you look in the mirror, maybe in the morning? But what, when a person meets Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes to a person, reveals himself, that person repents of their sin, meaning they acknowledge they've done wrong and who God is, and they need Christ in their life for salvation. By faith, receive him. They change instantly. You, and so we're putting up a different shape Let's just say you look like that, but now when you become a believer in Christ, you look differently. Now, of course, through your whole life, we'll all be growing and changing, but there's an instant change. So there you are again. Now, this diagram represents non-Christians. The non-Christians are in the the squares, and that's you in the yellow, right? Uh, Before... um, the, the shapes below, those are Christians. And non-Christians and Christians talk to each other and see each other, but basically most of the people you associate with, typically in our world, most non-believers associate with non-believers and believers associate with believers before salvation. And then upon salvation, look, you're still with the same people. You have the same friends. You know all of them, but you're different. Can you? Does that make sense? I'm hoping this only not only works in my mind, but it makes sense to you. Because it, it works in my mind, right? You're, this is you. And now, if you can see on your screen, you, you, you look like you've become what these people are. But these are the people that are your people. And here's what tends to happen as a person becomes a Christian and starts into their Christian journey, they begin to realize that maybe I don't fit in as much with the jokes and the priorities and the language and the views. And gradually over time, you start to move away from the people that maybe are your friends that you used to hang out with. And eventually... You end up with Christians. That's not all a bad thing. We clearly are designed by God to be with Christians if we're Christians so that we can grow and we can help each other and we can encourage each other. But we're not designed by God to be so much with Christians that we're not with non-Christians at all. And so maybe God's design would make it look like this. You are different when you become a Christian. And you fit in with Christians. But you're also still with unbelievers. So God's design is for us to be both different from... And 
in contact with unbelievers. And this is the focus of our message today from Luke chapter 5. Last Sunday, we began a brand new series, a six-week series leading us up to Easter called A Love Life Like Jesus. We're looking and examining how Jesus loved people. And we started last week by looking at Luke chapter 19, Jesus loving a notorious sinful person, one that nobody liked or wanted to be around named Zacchaeus. And it revealed that that was his purpose. His purpose in coming to this earth was to seek and save those who were lost. And we said, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our pur- we should adopt his purpose too. But how did he do it? And so today we, get a, we begin getting a glimpse of how he did it, and we watch his pattern. Jesus' pattern was to be with spiritually needy people. So let's read Luke 5, uh, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held uh, a great banquet for Jesus at his house or made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, here's the context. Here's the setting of this story. Much to the chagrin of the religious establishment, Jesus' pattern was to spend time with spiritually needy people. That's the way he did. He didn't separate himself from tax collectors and prostitutes and all kind of people in need. His encounter with Levi in Luke 5 reinforces his mission to include them in his community. And what we're going to look at today are some ways that we who are followers of Jesus can follow his pattern. So four steps, four four ways That if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to love like Jesus, if you want to really truly be a follower of Jesus, these are four ways that you can follow his pattern of relating to other people. And the first one is to initiate contact with sinful people. Let's start back at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth And he said to him, follow me. Follow me. Now, Levi, notice Levi and Matthew are two names for one person. Levi is the Hebrew name. Matthew is the Greek name. So some of the Gospels will say Levi, Matthew, 
in Matthew's gospel says Matthew, but it's the same, it's the same person. And his job was to collect a surcharge at the, at the collection booth as people traveled from city to city. In the Jewish culture of that day, tax collectors were hated <laughs> because they were uh, they were viewed as traitors to the nation. The Romans, the Roman government uh, hired them out sort of like independent contractors, and they could collect however much taxes they wanted from people, and they often did collect more than was necessary, and then they just gave the Roman government the, the, the cut, and they kept a lot for themselves. And so this was, this was a hated profession, and they were viewed as defectors from Israel, and that's why I worded the first point as initiate contact with sinful people. But I've got to qualify that. All of us are sinful people. <laughs> it's not just that some people are sinful and some people are not. We're all sinful people in God's eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason why I worded it this way was because of the notorious reputation that Levi and tax collectors had in that day. That's why we do it. All have sinned, and yet by God's grace, some have understood that our sin has separated us from God, and some of us have been drawn by God and put our faith in Jesus Christ and become Christians. So it's not that Christians are non-sinners and unbelievers are sinners. We're all sinners, but some of us are sinners saved by grace. And so when I say initiate contact with sinful people, basically we're talking about the spiritually needy, those who haven't yet acknowledged and recognized their sin and turned to Jesus Christ. Follow me, Jesus said. Follow me. Jesus is calling Levi to follow him. And notice, notice what he did. Verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. This was, this was immediate and instant obedience. And this was sacrificial ob- obedience because it's not likely that he was ever going to be able to go back to that tax booth. Just in the middle of the day, apparently he's collecting taxes, and he, he wants to follow Jesus so much that he just leaves. It's not likely that Herod would look favorably on that and say, oh, well, I'll give you another chance. This was full and sacrificial obedience. And notice here, who initiates the contact? Who is it? that takes the first steps. Who is it that makes the effort? It's Jesus. Jesus initiated contact with sinful people. He specifically went to him. Now, for each one of these points, there's not really a place, uh, a blank on your outline sheet as often, but maybe over to the right. For each one of these points, Maybe over on the right, you might want to put a little circle because I've thought of what is the opposite of each one of these and the opposite of initiating contact with spiritually needy people is indifference. And that's what we want to avoid. The second thing that we can learn from Jesus, the second way we can follow his pattern is to hang out, hang out with them and accept them. Look at verse 29. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. It was a great banquet. Jesus followed, or Levi followed Jesus completely, and he was so grateful for the opportunity to follow Jesus, he threw a big party. And think about it. If you're Levi and you're going to throw a big party, who are you going to invite? You're going to invite the people you hang out with. You're going to invite the people you know. You're going to invite other tax collectors. You're going to invite other sinful people. You're not going to just say, okay, I only want Jesus to be there and maybe the disciples. No, I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to have my people come. And that's what he did. And he made this great feast, this great banquet. And today, if we go to a meal, if we go to a banquet somewhere, it doesn't symbolize anything specifically. But in that day, in the first century culture, for you to go sit at a meal with somebody symbolized acceptance. It meant that you were welcoming them, even as they were welcoming you. And that's an important backdrop to the story, which helps us understand verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. They grumbled, <laughs> saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We looked at this word last week, grumbled. It's the same word that the Pharisees, that was used to the Pharisees in Luke 19 when they grumbled at Jesus about the very same thing. It means to complain, to mutter, to, to whisper. It's a graphic word. It's full of emotions. And in the original language, it's the first word in the sentence. Greek often moves words around, and the most important word, the most emphatic word in the, in the Greek sentence is the first word, and the second most emphatic word is the last word, typically in the Greek sentence. And here it starts with complaining, so it kind of literally reads, complaining were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The gospel writer wants us to know that these people were mad, they were complaining about this. Now, it doesn't appear that they're yet ready to complain to Jesus face to face, so they, they, they go to the disciples, they grumble, and, but knowing some of their background, knowing some background of the Pharisees can help us understand that the very name Pharisee probably means separated one. They were very concerned to keep the ceremonial laws, the laws which were given to keep Israel separate from the uh, nations around them and keep them pure. So there was the written law, but then there was the oral law, the, the laws that kind of tried to give definition, more specifics to the written law, like whether you should praise a bride extravagantly or how to greet a bereaved person. Or like in the oral tradition, there was one that... Uh, would not allow a woman to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she might discover a gray hair, and if she did it and plucked it out, she would be guilty of working on the Sabbath. These are the kinds of oral traditions that grew up. They weren't, they weren't from God. They weren't revealed as Scripture, but it was the Pharisees and others taking it to try to define it 
And Jesus often accused this group of people of focusing on the minor portions of the law at the expense of the greater things like love and mercy and justice. And a couple of results came as about this. First of all, they were separated from everybody who was not a part of their group. They were separated. They, they were separated from Gentiles. They were separated from Samaritans. And they were separated even from other Jewish people. They were aloof from them who weren't a part of their sect. They spent their time with the educated and the powerful. And they stayed away from common people, ordinary people. In other words, the Pharisees avoided people they viewed as sinners so people wouldn't think they were sinners. So that was one result. The other result is there's no gospel or outreach, right? If you knew the law, you were part of their group. But if you didn't, you were rejected and despised. And they just left you to yourself. And notice the contrast. Jesus accepts people and they judge people. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Jesus was very interested in holiness. And he spoke the truth. And he, he spoke what is right and wrong. But he didn't have interest in a false holiness. So when you read sinners, it's probably best to put it in quotation marks, as some translations do. Because as I mentioned earlier, everybody fits into that category. In contrast, the Pharisees used it of people they considered sinners like Levi and his friends. So, so what's the opposite of hanging out with unbelievers? What's the opposite of accepting unbelievers? It's judgmentalism. Now, this does not mean that you agree with how everybody lives, right? This does not mean that you allow society or culture to force its agenda down your throat like it's, like it's trying to do. This is what we're talking about is how you as a person, as a believer, relate to individual unbelievers. And that's a huge distinction, right? The opposite of acceptance is judgmentalism. The opposite of acceptance is requiring people to change before you'll have anything to do with them. And that's not what Jesus did. The most holy, pure person ever, right? He was God in the flesh. And he hung out with sinners. Number three, closely related to this point, is this. Focus on their needs rather than their potential to contaminate. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That explains why he didn't avoid them. It's if you're well, you don't need to go to the doctor. But if you're sick, you do need to go to the doctor. And this, what is true physically is also true spiritually. Who's going to go to the doctor? Somebody who knows they're sick. Somebody who knows that the doctor has some way to help them. 
most people, some people just don't like to go to the doctor, who shall remain nameless. But most people who know they're sick and know the doctor can help them will go to the doctor and get that help. And that is exactly true spiritually. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's, I'm coming to them. You know, the Pharisees were just as sick as Levi and his friends. But maybe Levi and his friends knew they were sick. They knew they needed the great physician. And those are the ones Jesus says he came to call. So here's the opposite of focusing on their needs rather than a potential contaminant. The opposite is is separation. Apostle Paul gives us a lot of help here in knowing what to do. Like, from what or whom do we separate? This isn't comprehensive. But basically in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, right? We have to be careful about deeds of darkness and have nothing to do with them. This is not saying have nothing to do with people who do fruitless deeds of darkness. You see the difference? Daryl Bach says, An excessive form of separation, such as the Pharisees called for, can kill mission. The final thing that we can do to follow Jesus' pattern is to call them to repentance and commitment. This is found in verse 32, as well as earlier in verses 27 and 8. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A couple different ways to interpret this. I think Jesus is using a touch of sarcasm here when he says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Uh, The Pharisees were not really righteous as God defined it. They only thought they were righteous. So Jesus is saying he is coming to call those who know they have a need, who know they are sinners, not those who think they are righteous. Repentance. What is, what is repentance when he says calling them to repentance? It's not feeling sorry for sin. It's not doing penance or doing actions and deeds. It is acknowledging sin. It's admitting that sin is wrong and offensive to God, and you're walking in this direction, and you become aware of it, and your repentance is when you say, yes, God, I agree with you, I acknowledge, and I turn so by your grace I can walk in the other direction. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. So here's the balance. Jesus accepts sinful people hangs out with them, but also calls them to repent and speaks to them. What's what's the opposite of that? It's when we're tongue-tied. We're not willing to call people to repent. We're not willing to speak the truth of the gospel for fear of offending someone or for fear they won't like it or we may get cut off from them. So here's God's word for us. Jesus' pattern 
was to be with spiritually needy people. Let's follow his pattern. <laughs> Let's follow his pattern. Let's be known as followers of Jesus, as people who love other people and love to be around them, and people that need Christ, and, and people that want to be around us, and people that are comfortable with us. Just as Jesus had the mission of evangelism, so do we. Just as he had a message of salvation that brings healing and hope and exactly what they need, so do we. And yet, sometimes there are things that stop us. And I want to, as we start to wrap up, I want to just talk about some obstacles that God can help you overcome. I think these are obstacles that Christians can have in reaching out and being with unbelievers and the first one is just isolation from unbelievers one of the saddest truths i've ever heard i've read it in multiple places i've heard it many times through the years is that the average christian two years after they become a christian have has no significant contact with unbelievers the average christian within two years of becoming a christian has no significant contact with unbelievers help me say this out loud Jesus was called a friend of sinners we have to have contact with people that need Christ this is why we're here we're not here if you go back to the shapes in the beginning we're not here to get in our holy huddle and just be with each other And Jesus gave us a great picture of it in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These metaphors, salt and light, show us that we need to be both different from the world and in contact with the world. Salt over here, just by itself, the preservative, it must be in contact with the things that it's going to season, right? It, otherwise, it's, it, it, it doesn't do anything. Light, you can't hide it under a bushel. You can't have your light just over here. You need to bring your light to where the dark spots are. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a huge obstacle is isolation. Another obstacle is fear of answering correctly. Do you remember in school, sometimes when the teacher would, would call uh, on uh, the class to answer, maybe call on somebody and ask them to come up to the board and write the answer on the board? Have you ever, like, do you ever remember being in that situation and sitting there thinking, oh, please don't call on me, please don't call on me? Is there anybody like that? You all went up to the board every time? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, somewhere in the world, there are people who are afraid of giving the wrong answer. 
And you know, sometimes Christians have that, like, that keeps us from talking to people like, what if they ask me something, what if they ask me something I can't answer? It's a fear of answering incorrectly. So some people just avoid evangelism because it's, it's safer that way, right? Because you don't have to worry about giving the wrong, quote, the wrong answer. Let me give a couple of suggestions. First of all, if that's you, give yourself some grace. <laughs> it's not up to you to give all the right answers and to save anybody. It's up to you to love people and be with them, and they're going to see that and hear that. Now, practically... Most of the things we worry about never come true anyway, right? And maybe you could try an approach like this, maybe a testimony approach. So maybe somebody does, let's say somebody does ask you a question and you don't know it. I think it's perfectly legit to say, you know, I can't come up with a a great answer for you right now, but I promise you I will try to find it. And yet, here's what I know. And then turn it to testimony. Here's what I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. (laughs) Like the man in John said. Maybe you don't say it that way. Maybe you say, my family life was chaos. And after I turned my life over to Jesus Christ, it stabilized. Or, I once was controlled by substances, but now God controls me and I'm free of all of that. I once was bitter towards people who had hurt me. But after Christ took over my life, I've forgiven and moved on. You might be able to share something like that. And then go look for the answer. And you can find answers. Here's another obstacle. Lack of confidence in your Christian life, your own Christian life. Sometimes, let's be honest, people are afraid to engage with unbelievers because they know they're not walking closely to the Lord right now. And you can do something about this one. (laughs) You can return to the Lord today in this moment and say, I want to be close to you and I want to walk with you. And then one more obstacle, uh, the wrong, what I call the wrong view of evangelism. What do I mean by the wrong view of evangelism? Well, there are a lot of wrong views of evangelism. One is it looks at like big evangelistic speakers like Billy Graham in his ministry when he was alive. Like, okay, that's evangelism. He, you gather thousands of people in, in, a, in, a, in an arena, in a stadium, and, and you, he tells them the gospel. And thank God for all of those who have been saved like that. But that's, that was God's ministry for him. Or maybe a wrong view uh, is that evangelism is a specific activity that happens at a certain time. Like, okay, now it's time for us to go do evangelism right now. But rather, Joseph Altrich, who wrote years ago a great book on lifestyle evangelism, he calls evangelism the constant and spontaneous overflow of our individual and corporate experience of Christ. Our constant and spontaneous overflow of our individual and corporate experience of Christ. And then sometimes people view evangelism as it's either only all speaking, you know, the attack, the confrontation, or it's only all being. I'm just going to be a silent witness. I'm just going to be a good testimony. Uh, 
And true evangelism involves both. Let me give you a couple decent uh, definitions of evangelism. There are many. Uh, William Abraham says evangelism is that set of intentional activities which is governed by the goal of initiating people into the kingdom of God for the first time. Aldrich says evangelism is expressing what I possess in Christ and explaining how I came to possess it. So Jesus' pattern was to be with people, to be with spiritually needy people. Let's follow that pattern. Maybe somebody here in this room or watching online is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, I hope you hear loud and clear today that you matter to God. That this is why Jesus came. He wanted to be with people who are spiritually needy. And if you're spiritually needy, if, you're, if you recognize that, I need Christ in my life. I need hope and purpose. And I need a relationship with God. Then know that he came and loved you so much that he would actually die on a cross to pay for your wrong and all of our wrong that separates us from God. And if we will open our hearts to him and by faith turn to him to follow him, he will save you. If you're a follower of Christ already, I want to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you to think about these questions. What unbelievers are you building relationships with? Not just waving to them as you leave the neighborhood. How are you building time in your schedule to do things with unbelievers? Meeting them where they are and not requiring them to come all the way before hanging out with them. When you go do your hobby, whether it's tennis or golf or pickleball or crafting or shopping, whatever it is, do you always and only invite fellow Christians to do it with you? Or do you include unbelievers? How many unbelievers know you? How many would invite you to coffee or a meal or a birthday party for their kids in their home? Have you ever shared a meal with somebody that's spiritually needy? And are you willing to consider teaming up with others to do this? Maybe your community group, maybe your Bible study, maybe your your fellowship group or your accountability group. Maybe just hey, we're going to hang out and we're we're not going to do a study tonight. We're just going to we're going we're just going to hang out and barbecue or something. And we're going to invite some of our friends too. So at the age of thirty six. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church. And she was the coordinator of the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy, advocacy Group. Up to this point in her life, she said that the only Christians she knew were her words, quote, intellectually impaired. They sent her hate mail. They carried signs with hateful 
sayings on them at gay pride marches. God hates so-and-so. But she met a pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd. And listen how she described it, how God used it in her life. I want to, I want to read her words from her book, um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, to finish. I think it's powerful to hear her describe it. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out of my bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I, believe, I believed at that time that God was dead, and if he, were, if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Mark said, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview They were willing to walk the long journey with me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since this the beginning, since this beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of the journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off studying scripture and my heart. Ken knew at that time that I couldn't come to church. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. He did it, and she trusted Christ, and she wrote a book about it. (laughs) The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Here's how I want us to wrap up today. I want you to turn to five or six people around you, maybe just form a a little group. I'd like you to think about who did this with you. We, We said Jesus did four things here that we can model. Initiate contact with sinful people. Hang out with them and accept them. Focus on their needs rather than the potential to contaminate and and calling them to repentance and commitment. So think back in your own life. Who did that for you? 
who did any of those or all of those or some of those. So just take a few minutes, three or four minutes there to greet some people around you and and chat with them and, and talk about some of the people that did that for you. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.